Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host. And before we get going on this episode, I'd like to encourage everyone to join us on the Locker Room app for our live recording sessions at 4 p.m. Eastern on Sundays. We do that every week. So it's your chance to come in, ask some questions, just listen to us as we're recording live, whatever the case may be, but we would love to see you there. This is not a live episode, however. It is a continuation of a, a mini-series that we began last week where we're looking at the most underrated player on every single team in the NBA. We've already covered the Eastern Conference. If you haven't listened to that already, go ahead and do so. But after this one, because we're doing the Western Conference now. Uh, before we go into how exactly we approached that, how's it going, Dan? I'm doing all right. I'm a little bit frazzled today, as you know, but I'm anxious to talk about do the second half of this underrated series that wasn't supposed to come out this week, but it worked out that something else we were supposed to do didn't work out, so we're going to do this. And this was a this is one of those pods that feels rewarding because it's so difficult. It is. It is incredibly difficult, but still I'm not going to let that spoil my mood right now cuz I'm just on top of the world after my Jacksonville Jaguars took Trevor Lawrence number 1 overall in the NFL draft. I know that's not relevant to our NBA conversation, but I feel like I have to celebrate because as a beleaguered Jags fan, I never get anything to celebrate, and I have to. Yeah, I didn't really feel like asking you how you were doing, though, because the Giants, my Giants, got snubbed of Devontae Smith with uh, Philadelphia leapfrogging them in the draft, so I was pretty disappointed about that. But congratulations Uh, to you on future head and shoulders in Dorsey, Trevor Lawrence. I'm going to be insufferable about the Jaguars until they inevitably start 0-4 and, and Trevor Lawrence tears his ACL or something. Oh, don't Hashtag put that, Joe Burrow. Don't put the latter out there. Yo, congr- I like congratulations to Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase reuniting, but if I'm Joe Burrow's ACL, I'm a little bit nervous just because that O-line is a little bit better, but they really could have used Sewell, I thought. I thought that was the pick. I thought Sewell was the second best prospect in the draft, so I was shocked that they didn't go that direction. I kind of get it, but I think it's the wrong decision. But NBA stuff. Do you want to uh, do you want to explain again how we approached this underrated conversation? Yeah. So just we're. I think we both, in most cases, understand that the fan bases of all these teams probably appreciate these players enough, and so we're not going by those standards. We are national NBA podcast, so that's what we're approaching it from. Just guys that we think deserve more recognition for the job they've done this season, uh, more maybe more recognition overall. They're either just underrated because of their impact or underappreciated because of the role they assume. They're doing a lot of the dirty work. Maybe their numbers just don't leap off the page, and that's why they're not getting a ton of attention. But that's sort of how we approach this. We also tried to not double dip where we went through our lists and we split them up so that we each had different players. That was not the case. I think there were two, maybe three teams where we just decided to overlap because we were we felt so strongly about those options. And it wasn't at all because we didn't think that the Golden State Warriors had anybody nobody who was underappreciated at the moment i was gonna say like some of the agreement is because we both were in lockstep on a guy being super underrated and then there are a couple of teams where it's like you're really pulling out your hair you are i don't have any left to like try to find anyone at all who we can call underrated and i tried to you did not steer clear from stars but you didn't go star happy the two you picked i thought were good ones Neither of us, spoiler alert, picked Stephen Curry, though. I actually think he's probably more appreciated on a national scale than he is with his own organization. I don't know what that means mm. about him, but that's where I land with him. I don't know if that should qualify as he doesn't get picked, so we could throw his name out there, but neither of us selected him because I actually think that people in our shoes who are you know 10,000 feet above the ground, 30,000, whatever it is, we appreciate Steph for what he's doing and what the Warriors should be doing around him. 
it feels like they've taken him for granted though that's where i'm that's i think i think i have trouble just like referring to anyone who is definitively in the mvp race as underrated like steph probably is not going to win mvp like we i think we both agree that nikola Jokic should be the obvious front runner there but he has been mentioned it has been a significant topic of conversation on the national level about whether he has worked his way into the mvp hunt and like that in and of itself to me is disqualifying in this conversation Again, I still think it's that the Warriors not trying to go all in in any sort of way this season and sort of approaching it where the lays far approach where Steve Steve Kerr's like, we're not going to chase wins this year before the season started. You have one of the three to five best players alive. That's just a very awkward stance to assume. And I think that's probably putting it kindly. I feel like I've seen larger and larger swaths of the Golden State Warriors fan base kind of turning against Steve Kerr a little this season. And I get it. They have more deeper criticisms, and I do think that he can be like an okay, like a, a very good defensive coach. But his offensive system isn't for everyone. Also, it's hard to piece that together when forget about truncated off seasons or training camps. But you just have a lot of flyers on your team, some of whom don't profile as long term keepers. And so, can you get those guys to to buy in to what you're trying to do? And the other thing is like, why not let Steph go full? James Harden every single night and put the ball in his hands more. I understand the importance of his off-ball gravity. At this point, it's not helping anyone. The Warriors now, when you grayed s- out as like the worst floor-spacing team in the league. When you say that Steve Kerr's offense isn't for everyone, are you referring to it's not for all of the Golden State Warriors fans or it's not for all of the players on his team? Correct. Fair. I think it's a fine system when you have all these stars on your team, but like not everyone's going to be able to think at that level. I, I certainly can't think at that level. And to, it takes a special. I think part of the reason it works so well is think about how long Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, and Stephen Curry have, you know, spent together now. And you integrate Kevin Durant, who's just a basketball genius in himself, but you also have those three guys with such established tenures. I did not think we were going to get off to a Steve Kerr tangent on this pod, let alone to start this pod. After you just never know where it's going to go. Do you want to start? Am I, am I starting us off this time? Correctly? I think you're going to start us. Yeah. Do you trust me to go alphabetically this time? Not even a little bit. You did not post the clip alphabetically shaming me, even though I cut it for you. It wasn't even like you had to cut it to make fun of me. I, I gave you permission to use it. I totally missed that. I you might it, have to resend it to me. I sent it in our group chat, and I, was, I said, Adam, do with this what you will. I just totally ignored you like I do most of your texts. Yeah, see, I was going to be hurt either way. I guess it's better this one wasn't as public. Anyway, with Dallas, I went with, actually, ironically, we talked, I just sort of realized this is, we talked about him on our last pod, Maxi Kleba. I still don't think he... 3 and D ace Maxi Kleba. Right. And I, I don't know that, like, he's fully appreciated for what he's able to do defensively, how he's able to move. When you look at his matchups this season, the the defensive data, he's a... He's essentially a perimeter big. Like, this is someone who can chase around. Like, yeah, if you want him to, to protect the rim a little bit, that's fine. But he's been s- switched on to threes. He's covered a bunch of fours. He's probably, you know, he can, again, he can defend lower usage people basically all over the court if you want him to. And that gives you a, a ton of optionality. I don't think it's going to make your defense, but I do think, and and the numbers can be off with this all the time, but it feels like he's a good match for Kristaps Porzingis if we're fast forwarding the postseason. That's a front court that I would just be super intrigued to see more minutes from and i noted this stat on our last pod but in case um, people didn't listen to that one first of all what are you doing but there are only the only players who are have a block percentage above 2.4 this year and are making 
um, more than two three-point field goals per 36 minutes, none of them are bigs. There's Maxi Kle- aside from Kleba, there's Kleba, Jeremy Grant, Michael Porter Jr., and Danny Green. You can you can say, I guess, if you want to consider Jeremy Grant a big, that's fine. But those are all guys that I just named. Danny Green's a guard, a wing, and then Michael Porter Jr.'s, you know, a wing, and then Jeremy Grant has the ball in his hands a ton this season. So I found that to be very interesting um company. So that he's in he's in great shape with with that. And I do think that he's still not just fully appreciated yet because I do he's is he Dallas's second best big on the roster? I think that's pretty clear. Would you put anyone else in front of him? No, I wouldn't. And Kleba was my backup choice for this pick. Um, but I, I, I ultimately have to go with a guy who I, I don't think any of our listeners will be surprised because they at this point they really should know my affinity for guys who are have significant involvement in the offense and just don't make mistakes. And on this Dallas Mavericks team, that's Jalen Brunson. He is so vital to this current team, probably overly so compared to where he should be, uh, just because they they so desperately need that second ball handler alongside or in relief of Luka Doncic. And that's the role he's asked to fill, and he fills it pretty well. Uh, he's never going to be one of those guards who explodes for the random 40-point night or is consistently putting up 20-point outputs. He's just a steady producer who makes the right plays, whether that's getting involved as a scorer, whether it's setting up his teammates, whether it's playing with a little bit more intensity on the defensive end. And the overall numbers end up looking really good as a result. I mean, you can't complain about the 38.9% shooting from beyond the arc. You can't complain about 3.5 assists and 1.2 turnovers per game. He just he is the prototypical guard who can initiate, who can play off the ball and can fill whatever role is necessary on any given night, depending on the opponent, depending on where his teammates are struggling. Yeah, Mo Dakil, former co-host of the Hardwood Knox podcast, will very much appreciate that. And he is, I think, if in in some, he's been their second best player this season. It's Kristaps Porzingis is clearly their second most important, but this year, it thus far, it's probably been Jalen Brunson just because of every of all that secondary creation and scoring that he's given them. I think that's probably disappointing for Dallas because he's more of a high floor than a high ceiling player. Ideally, Kristaps Porzingis was the second best player, and you're looking at Tim Hardaway Jr. as the third best, but that just hasn't been the case. And I I agree with you that based on the consistency of his output, Brunson has probably been the second most valuable player in Dallas this year. I'll also note, though, he's, he's not a guy who's going to be good enough to preclude the Mavericks from chasing that second shot creator that they still really need alongside Luka Doncic when you just look at you know the the burden he carries all game but even in crunch time when things start start to bog down as well absolutely let's move on to Denver yes I called an audible here by the way just just to warn you oh interesting I'm excited to hear what it is but my my argument here is basically a repeat of my argument for Jalen Brunson because Monte Morris is the same archetype of basketball player just the the high floor, low ceiling, doesn't make mistakes, can fill all the different roles player. Uh, I, I've viewed him for a while as probably the best backup guard in basketball. I think that he could be a starter for a different team. He might have gotten more opportunities to start had he been healthy since Jamal Murray went down with a torn ACL. But still, this guy just doesn't make mistakes. You can count on him against any opponent to fill his role without harming the team on any level. And it's, again, not for a lack of involvement. He's a good shooter. 
He has a little bit of Chris Paul in his game to his game, like where he can just kind of dive across the the lane and get those elbow jumpers whenever he wants. Obviously, he's not as good as Chris Paul. He doesn't have the upside of Chris Paul, but he he can fill that same kind of role for small doses, which is pretty important on a Denver team that can't just foist all of the offensive responsibilities on Nikola Jokic night in and night out. It it can and it does and it should, but like he he needs a break occasionally. And when he when he does, Monte Morris is crucial to this team. I was waiting. I was wondering how long it was going to take for you to compare Monte Morris to a future Hall of Famer, and you did not disappoint. Sub two minutes, I think. You're welcome. And I think he's he's the choice. If I had to, if I was going to double up with you here, I'd go with Monte Morris as well. Which is, I think, I was caught off guard, and I didn't know he was going to be this good defensively. I'm not going to pretend to have watched a, a ton of of uh, Facundo Campazzo before this season, but I thought, like, why are you getting him when you have Monte Morris? It, it ended up working out for them, so that was clearly a flawed take, but I thought maybe it portended they were less committed to him. He's just super important to what they do. I was going to pick Aaron Gordon. I don't know if Denver Nuggets fans would disagree because he hasn't been underrated there. The value they gave up for him shows that they properly evaluated him, and it hasn't been you know easy, go, um, you know smooth sailing since he's been there, and I, I think that his efficiency will normalize as he gets more comfortable. It'll be fine. I went with Jermichael Green. I still think— Of course you did. Yeah, for me to stay on brand. Of course you did. Look, he's he do, his numbers are never going to smack you in the face off the page. And the on-off numbers this year, they're not kind to him on offense, but he's still a stretch big. And while he can't anchor a defense, which is why it's been so problematic for, you know, in certain instances to play him at the 5, he has good hands, good foot speed on defense for for a big. And when you're looking at the types of assignments he's had to cover, at least before the Aaron Gordon trade defensively, he's done a lot more heavy lifting over there than I think he's been credited for. And this is per B-ball index. His matchup position estimate was a 3.5 this year, just to give you a hint of how much he he defended small forwards almost 20% of the time, power forwards 37% of the time, and centers a little over 20% of the time. He's also switched on to some guards, both at the point guard and shooting guard spot. He has defended every single position on at least 10% of his possessions this season. This is, again per b-ball index this these are not gospel stats but i always find that interesting as a measure of you know switchability for that and that's not someone i think gets talked about enough in that context he's still just a super important dude defensively and the fact that he can give you some from floor spacing on offense he's at 41 percent from three this year and that's on just 3.4 attempts per game you'd like to see him crank up that volume but he's he's also playing i think he's he's under 20 minutes per game this year i think he's someone who gives you a path to actually using your depth in the playoffs because you're never going to bounce Nikola Jokic from the floor. He's your five, but he can play any any lineup combination you want to configure. If you want it to be Jokic in green, you want to be Paul Millsap in green, Michael Porter Jr. in green. Do you want to go super big with Millsap, green, and maybe Jokic or Millsap, green, and Porter Jr. just get weird? He fits with whatever iteration of the front court you want to roll out. Jamichael Green is a good example of how we're differentiating between the national view versus the local view. It seems like so many different nuggets throughout the season have expressed how much they like playing with him and how valuable he is to the defense that I think there's a pretty good sense of how important he is to this team within that local bubble. But on the on the national level, I, I 100% agree with you. That's an interesting way to look at this is as we go, I'm going to try and note it, whether these players are undervalued by their own team. I wouldn't have said that about Brunson or Green to this point. I don't think I would have said that about, um, well, this is only our second team, so that's where we are. If you're, you're ready to move on to our third team. 
Let's do it. I this is going to be an eight-hour podcast, apparently. Isn't that's always how we roll? So I had yeah. uh, Juan Toscano Anderson here for the Warriors, who, by the way, have not, uh, I, who have not converted his contract, as far as I know, unless you've seen that uh, JTA. Yeah, yeah, I find that to be wild. But he, he really gives them something from you name it, and he can just do it. I think firmly, he's their second most versatile defender after Draymond Green. He might just be their second most important defender, period. He can keep the ball moving. Um, he can shoot threes. He can, he can, uh, excuse me, he can navigate the half court when he does have the ball in his hands. And I don't know that this is anybody who's going to ever serve a high-volume role, but whatever addition of the Warriors rolls out next season, whenever they get really good, I think he can fill just some sort of role. He's he's pretty good cutter, and he's a good finisher off of those. He just fills so many voids, probably none of them huge enough to be this a fringe star or anything like that. But I think this is someone who, whether you want the Warriors to develop or if they want to be good next year and they're making that like all-in trade with some of their other future assets, I think he can help out and be a part of a really good team. I don't know that you can say that with a lot of their other players this season. Yeah, he feels like one of the few role players on this team who seems almost certain to be a part of the next competitive iteration of Golden State once everyone's healthy. Uh, I'll admit on this one in my notes, I wrote down pass and then Juan Toscano Anderson in parentheses. I just I don't know that there's really a great option. I, I'm still not convinced that Toscano Anderson is that much better than his reputation, but I think he's the best choice if we have to pick somebody because the other options just aren't appealing. It's not going to be like Jordan Poole or Damian Lee or Nico Mannion, uh, Eric Pascal. Like, I feel like we know that he's just this off the bench, like moderately efficient scorer that doesn't do that much else. Draymond Green's offense has fallen to such an extent that I don't think that we can make a case for him to be underrated as important as he is to the schemes that Golden State runs on both ends of the floor. And we already talked about Steph at the top. So yeah, like JTA it is. And also, just per B-Bill Index again, since I was on that page when we were talking about uh, Jermichael Green before, of the 270 players who have logged at least 700 minutes this season, he ranks in the top 10 of positional versatility on, on defense. So that just to give you a little view into how valuable he is there. He has guarded on partial possessions every single position, all five, at least 15% of the time. It's impressive for sure. That brings us to Houston. I'm proud of your alphabetical order this episode. Yeah, you're, killing you're forcing it. me to navigate to every single team, even though Houston's technically your team. <laughs> uh, so Houston was tough just because they've had 27 different players suit up for the organization this season. So many of the headlines have been about James Harden and the trade and what they're going to do following the trade, that it feels like the two potential cornerstones on this roster – have kind of flown under the radar a little bit. So I, I'm going to make a dual selection here of Christian Wood and Kevin Porter Jr. Uh, with Christian Wood, you know, it's it's it was pretty obvious how well he was playing toward the tail end of his tenure with the Detroit Pistons, and he got paid accordingly in free agency. But maybe it's because he was injured at the start of the year and didn't really get to play much alongside Harden. Or maybe it's just because the national spotlight has shifted so far away from this team that has just been free-falling in the standings all season. 
he's played fantastic basketball. Like he's averaging 21.1 points and 9.8 rebounds. He's still hitting a bunch of three pointers at an efficient clip. He's getting to the foul stripe where admittedly he could stand to work on his stroke a bit, but at least he's getting there for now. Like this is very much a potential all-star for the next few seasons who can be the centerpiece of a playoff caliber team, even in the Western conference. So I just, I don't think that he's gotten enough attention because of the circumstances and the arguments really similar for Kevin Porter jr. Who has just shown that he is this gifted natural scorer who can get buckets from all three levels, who can work off passes, who can create his own shots. And I wrote him down as the choice before the Houston Rockets 143-136 victory over the Milwaukee Bucks on Thursday night in which Kevin Porter Jr. had 50 points, 5 rebounds, and 11 assists and just gave me even more fodder here. I was about to say that that was very convenient for you that uh, he he went off just before we recorded this this podcast. Um, I did not have either of those two players, and I'm perfectly fine with you selecting either one. I went with Sterling Brown, who hopefully he continues to make a a full recovery he's been i'm almost surprised they didn't move him at the deadline just because i think that a contender really could have have used him but he's shooting 42.3 percent from three this year we knew he could really do that but he gives you a lot of positional versatility on defense that's something i keep coming back to the assignments he's had to shoulder there this season for houston they've been pretty tough they've even run him at point guard a little bit and so if you're going to get someone who can fill just you know give contribute from so many different areas uh I think he, I was surprised that he wasn't used more in Milwaukee. And I was just also surprised that they weren't interested in keeping him, especially how the, the offseason shook out. And they opted for, you know, maybe Torrey Craig would have been a better fit for them, but they ended up getting rid of him too. And so Sterling Brown feels like he's been one of those players who's underrated for a while. Yeah, maybe he doesn't shoulder enough volume until now, at least, to say he was 3 and D. This season, you could absolutely say he was 3 and D, and he gave you just a little bit of breaking cage of, of emergency ball handling as well. I think it's a great choice. I'm just, I wanted to defer to the star caliber players who we feel certain are going to be there for the next competitive version of this team because I think the circumstances have allowed for it. But I think, in terms of pure like skill level versus national recognition, that that's a perfectly fine selection. Let's see if I get this, this next team right. Do you trust it? The Los Angeles Clippers. Well done again. Is this me first or you first? You just said Houston. This is you. So I believe you this first. one's me first. There, I really could not narrow this down at all. I think Nicholas Batum, the Clippers leader in minutes this season, total minutes, Nicholas Batum, he's been good. Which is still them. just a shocking stat. Right. And it's it makes sense when you look at just their availability. I actually didn't double check the stat before we recorded tonight, so maybe I should double check it. But it happened at one point. And yes, it's, it's easily explained away with all the injuries they've dealt with. But just the circumstances under which he came when he's been so bad – uh, when he was so bad, excuse me, in Charlotte and now playing a pivotal role for, even if you're disappointed with the Clippers this season, who I watch and I'm impressed, but they still just, they lose these games sometimes. It's like WTF. Anyway, Reggie Jackson has been great for them. I, I do almost have to wonder, did we throw Rondo in there? Because people, he's a constant meme and he's been pretty good for them and it's not even the playoffs yet. I, I still there are think, a ton of options here. Right. I still think that, by the way, they gave up too much for him, but it does look like he's going to be a lot better than expected. I settled on Zubats. I still don't think, and he's definitely appreciated within the Clippers fan base. This is someone who's viewed as like this plotting big, and he's really not. He's a very quick guy around the rim, can give you strong contests there, deter shots, block them outright. And then on offense, he is just, he's a runaway 
freight train, but like has nimble feet too. So there's like speed and dexterity and coordination there where he's sort of zooming towards towards the basket and gives you a level of physicality too on your screens. This is he's a two way player. I'm not gonna say he's one of the best two way bigs, but he's just not as slow footed as people think that he is on defense. And he provides you actual value on offense. He's I would say he gives you you know, Serge Ibaka is going to space the floor, but I would argue that Zubats is going to give you more of the roll gravity on offense, which is something that I would also argue the Clippers need more than really what Ibaka's done for them, and he hasn't played in what feels like a trillion years. You need Ibaka. You like having that floor spacing element, but if you really wanted to go five out, like you have Marcus Morris at the five standing right there, there's not another player on this roster who gives you what Zubats does. It's not, you know, it's not the Marcus Cousins. Then it really never was his his style and it certainly isn't now so that that player who can give you off ball rim pressure on offense and then still sort of hold his ground and not get beat too badly there's there's certainly bad matchups for him on defense but who is going to give you just stout rim protection he's he's a two-way player and i just don't think he gets talked about enough in that manner nationally it feels like he's also gaining a larger and larger portion of the offensive share and just carving out more importance in the scheme on both ends as the season progresses. Like it feels like he might be a very crucial element to the inevitable title push that they make in the playoffs. Um, but he, he was still my number two choice here. I'm going the star route because while I don't think you want Paul George to be the unquestioned leader in the locker room, probably not the number one option on a title favorite either. He does not get enough credit anymore. And I get why, because he's had so many high profile letdowns in the playoffs. It feels like every time he's featured in a postseason moment these days, it's for the wrong reasons, whether Damian Lillard was hitting a series ending shot over him from a ridiculous distance or he was a central figure in the three to three to one lead collapse against the Denver Nuggets in last year's playoffs and had not great things to say in the pressers afterwards. Like he's gotten a lot of negative attention to the point that I don't think he's getting nearly enough credit for being the nightly top 10 player that he can be. I don't think that's hyperbolic at all, given the suffocating wing defense that he plays, the versatility and the positions that he can guard, regardless of who that opponent may be, the ability to take over as a scorer from all three levels. We don't talk enough about how George has become an unquestionably elite three-point shooter. Last season, it was 41.2% on 7.9 attempts per game. This year, it's 42.2% on 7.6 attempts per game. That consistency from beyond the arc is huge. And he's coupling it with efficient free throw shooting, which is a must for this Clippers team that doesn't attack the basket enough. And we're also seeing him develop into maybe the best passer he's been at any stage of his career right now. Like this is a guy who should be featured prominently in every conversation about the 10 best basketball players in the world. And instead, we want to remember the playoff failures. And that's just not fair to him. I also think I agree with everything you said, which is why I thought it was fine that you went with a a superstar here. I do think he's responsible for his own memes sometimes. I'll say that much. But it was really disheartening when he came out and said he was dealing with just, I can't remember if it was anxiety or just being depressed inside the bubble. There needed to be more empathy there. And there's there's stuff that's actually funny where he's like, I need to get back to that season, my, my MVP season. You never won MVP. That, that's funny. But when a player comes out, let's not troll them when they're talking about it. It was even with, we didn't credit Montrez Harrell was wasn't really he he came to the bubble late i believe so there was that element of it he was also mourning the death of his grandmother like there are human elements that we just need to consider 
a lot more. And it was kind of disheartening to see how much it was ignored with Paul George. Like he was trying to say that to gain fake sympathy, artificial sympathy, or just some sort of clout. We need to figure out how to toe the line here better because I actually think it's pretty easy to separate what, what when Paul George deserves to be memed versus what is a legitimate excuse. So I'm with you on everything you said there, and that's the only other aspect I would add. And I, I agree with you that he is responsible for some of those memes. Like he does not say – well, he, he probably says the right things sometimes in press conferences that you just shouldn't say because you know what the reaction is going to be and it's just going to backfire even if you're being honest. And yeah, I mean like he has had letdowns in big moments, but it just feels like the general discourse is too quick to jump on the flaws and try to use him as a reason that the Clippers are just perpetually going to underachieve with this roster construction instead of focusing on the fact that this guy is one of the best shooters in the world, one of the best wing defenders in the world and can do so much between those two roles. I'm, I'm totally with you. This one's easy. So the, I'm apparently going to go through all the teams, even if you're starting them, just to prove I know how to spell. The Lakers. I love that we have you doing this. I, I really do not remember seeing you send through that clip. So as soon as we hang up here, I think I might need you to resend it because it oh, feels been, like that's fairly evergreen. It was pretty bad. Oh, it was it was twice. It was pretty that's bad. It's so bad. It was twice. Yeah, I fully it was not it was great. You missed your chance to put that clip public, though. I think I deleted it already. It's probably in our text box, though. You could look at the details in that if you really want it. I'll need to. But, yeah, good job going from one L.A. team to the other. Um, (laughs) I'm going to go with Alex Caruso here. Uh, I I think that it's a similar, albeit very different, argument to the Paul George one, where the memes have overtaken the player. Like, there's so much focus on the fact that Bleacher Report and other outlets with prominent social media activity over post about him because for whatever reason, the bald mamba or whatever his current nickname du jour is wants to be posted about a lot so that it gets lots of attention because fans love them some Caruso content. But that's that's almost overshadowed the fact that he's been a really effective role player for the Lakers team for a few years running now. He's not ever going to be a star despite how many posts are about about him. He's not ever going to score a lot of points, but you know that he can run the show as a backup point guard and involve his teammates. You know that he can attack the basket and and show off the hops and throw down a dunk or two. He's a good shooter. He's a good defender. He hustles every time he's out there. He's one of those guys who seems to know that he has to just play his heart out to make sure that he keeps getting those minutes. He's also really athletic. He's also a really good shooter. Like, yeah, he's he's going to get made fun of a lot and he's going to show up more than he should because of the memes. But the attention is not the right kind. He deserves more attention as a good basketball player. I went with and this is I almost considered Kyle Kuzma. I went with Marcus Ole. I feel Lakers fans have been very frustrated with his play. And I'm just as curious as to what more they've expected of him. I know he doesn't. I know he doesn't shoot. That's always sort of been his thing. Can you guess how many players on the team are averaging fewer field goal attempts for 36 minutes than Marc Gasol? None. Three. Jared Dudley. Oh, well, actually, it's, it's really only two. So, excuse me. It's Jared Dudley and Kosas Atentacumpo. That's, you know, you're averaging fewer. That's a little surprising. Yeah. There's, I so I get that frustration, but would you rather watch Andre Drummond just miss a bunch of two-pointers? Because that's really what you're, you're going to see. 
And he's been, look, he's not like this super, he's never been super quick on defense. It's about being in the right spot for him. Opponents are shooting under 60% against him at the rim. And for what it's worth, he is shooting over, isn't he over 40% from three this season? Should have looked that up too. He's at, he's at 38.7% from three. That's, look, the volume matters. I understand 2.5 attempts per game is not a lot. But he's shooting 38.7% from three. I just don't know what more you want. And he gives you some of that passing IQ. I think this is someone who really could help the Lakers and help them even more during the the no LeBron, no AD stretch than he really had a chance to. And I'm curious to see what ends up happening in the postseason where I do think Anthony Davis plays a lot of five. And so maybe it doesn't matter about Trez versus Gasol versus Andre Drummond. But he might be the big that I'd be more inclined to go. I'd certainly play him more than I would Andre Drummond. I'll make that clear. There might be a debate with Montrez Harrell because of the pressure he can help you put on the rim. And he's someone who's not afraid to shoot. But we're at the point where it's, how did Mark Gasol become like this, like outcast in LA? I'll be honest. I have routinely forgotten that Mark Gasol is on the Lakers. Just, he doesn't play enough. I think it's as simple as that. Like we, we know just how much of an impact he can make on a title contender because he's done it year after year after year after year. And the, de- the decline was never going to be this stark given how much of his game relies on positioning and outthinking the, the opposition and knowing what players are developing before they actually start to develop. Like his, his game is not based on the explosive athleticism that other players are. So the, this, this decline should not have been stark enough to justify falling this far out of the primary rotation. Yeah, he's had seven DNP coach coaching decisions in their last 11 games, which just, that feels wild to me. It does. Pressure's on Memphis Grizzlies. Just kidding. You just nail one after another. I'm really impressed with your spelling today. I did not nail the fact that uh, it's my turn to start, though. So, so... There were we we settled on just the Memphis Grizzlies. That's who we're picking as the most underrated player. Is just the Memphis Grizzlies. Yeah, we we both just picked the whole roster. The two for me were between Danthy Melton and Kyle Anderson. I would have had Kyle Anderson. I think he might be one of the. And I mean Melton. Can you say this about the whole team? Kyle Anderson. We talked about him on a previous podcast. He's hitting his threes now and taking them, which matters as well. He can be moved around a little bit on defense, where he uses space to his advantage because he's not super quick when he has the ball in his hands and is navigating the half court, you feel super confident. I still don't understand his body mechanics. I've compared him to one of those inflatable tube men at the, the sketchy car dealerships that billow in the wind. It looks like he's going 80 different directions, but not in super fast motion, and yet you can't keep up with him at the same time. Very high IQ player, and he, he uses that disadvantage on defense too, and he can just fill the box score from all, all over the place. It's No, he's not going to put up like... 20 and 10 and 5 but he's going to give you just you know he's going to give you a steal a block a game and he's going to give you some rebounding he's going to give you some secondary playmaking he's going to score you know his between 12 and 16 points a game and just be rock solid for that Anthony Melton has just been a monster this season it's truly terrifying that his his three ball is going in and there was the article written I can't remember you credited on this podcast you remember who wrote it I was going I was going to again. Yeah, it's it's Owen Phillips. So Owen Phillips wrote about his just substantial three point improvement where he's shooting forty four point three percent and I think it was his percentage increase is like the single biggest in the league 
from we might be talking about a different article because the Owen Phillips article I was I was planning to reference that I did in the last episode he he got data from Basketball Reference about how many page views each player in the NBA had had and compared that to their scores and catch all metrics and DeAnthony Melton was like the obvious outlier in a positive way well, where like his page views in no way ju- are, are justified by his performance. I must have read. Something I think I said that backwards. The the increase for for him at whatever rate was just huge because it's he's improved his three point percentage. He was at 28.6% last year on roughly half the volume that he's taking now, 44.3% this year. So we're talking about a 15.7 point percentage increase. That is absolutely massive. And just, he is, the Grizzlies can rough you up on defense, and he's just one of the primary reasons why. He's a guard, but he and he's not going to you know, go up against the best player. Part of that I also feel like is, he forces the ball out of people's hands. Even if they are a scorer, that might be their first inclination. It's just not really going to happen if you're playing Melton. At least it's not going to happen easily. Uh, so, And then he can give you, it's not just, hey, he needs to defend these smaller players. He's, you know, you should probably be using him mostly just against guards, but he can give you some wing minutes too. And that's been absolutely huge. So I landed, I, didn't, I couldn't decide between them. I think that Kyle Anderson, just given what he could do as a creator, I might lean as more valuable or perhaps more underrated because we're maybe it's easier to notice Melton this season because of that huge increase from three. Those two players have been absolutely fantastic for them. I think you can just close your eyes and point to the Memphis depth chart and you'll probably find somebody who's underrated because beyond Dylan Brooks and Kyle Anderson, like I think you can make a case for Grayson Allen. You can make a case for Desmond Bain for Xavier Tillman. Um, My backup choice is Dylan Brooks who just, I think, because he signed a big contract and then was featured primarily as an inefficient scorer, it's gone very overlooked that he's become a rock-solid defender who is responsible for taking on some of the toughest matchups on a nightly basis and still thrives on that preventing end. But my choice has to be Jonas Valanciunas just because I've called him the most underrated player in the NBA for like two seasons running now. And it feels like this season in particular, he's really started to justify that. He's increasing his importance within the offensive schemes, um, especially lately around a three-game absence that I believe was due to a concussion. Um, Over his last 26 games, he's averaging 18.6 points and 13.1 rebounds. He's shooting 62% for the field, 38.5% from three-point range, 79.3% on free throws. Uh, The Grizzlies are outscoring opponents by 3.4 points per game when he's on the floor, which is huge with a Western Conference-heavy schedule. Valanchunas is a solid interior defender, a good rim protector, a good help defender. He's an underrated passer when they choose to feature him as such. He can space the floor. He can score efficiently around the basket. Like they're really, It really doesn't feel like there's a weak spot in his game. And he's just flown beyond, below the radar for so long because he's played on teams with bigger names. You know, the Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan pairing in Toronto and the uh, and playing next to John Morant in Memphis now, like, he might be that team's best player this season. Valanciunas is a really good choice, and I think like you mentioned, he sort of has a... He's probably been so underrated for the past few years, dating back to even when the Raptors traded him, that it feels like he should have graduated from this discussion, but the fact that he hasn't sort of proves your point type deal. Uh, I think my my follow-up question is, do you agree that he's been the best player for Memphis this year? Ooh. That's a really good. I question. think I think he's been more consistently valuable than John Morant. John Morant's clearly their most important player. There's been some one hundred percent if he's shooting from him, and he did miss some time. So, 
there's a chance. If it's not going to be Valanciunas, I don't know who. Maybe Kyle Anderson. It's not going to be Brooks. I'm trying to, you know, it's not Jaron Jackson Jr. only just started playing. So, yeah, I think it's, it's possible. I, I think it's Valanciunas. That, I did not. That's an interesting thought exercise. I never even I never even considered that for the for this. I would just default to John Morant because he's John Morant. But still, I think you have a, a pretty salient point there. Minnesota Timberwolves. I'm on fire. Just going to go from right you team are. To, to right team. Who did you have for them? Uh, I went with Josh Okoge. I don't think that there is a particularly great choice for this team because they aren't very good. But I, I'm going to go with Okoge just because he has established himself as this high-energy, ball-hawking defensive presence who is able to, to fill a bunch of different voids and very much does defend the opposition's best guard or wing on a nightly basis. Um Granted, that's not particularly tough to do when the other options are the other members of the Timberwolves, but the ability to play above average defense on a defensive team this bad is important. And among a lot of not great options, that's who I'm going to go with. I'm surprised you didn't. I'm surprised we didn't double dip here with Jaden McDaniels because I think that's the clear answer. He's been the way he plays. I kind of forget that he's a a rookie. And he's been so valuable for them defensively, too. And we talk about how much they need to find their floor of the future to go alongside Carl Anthony Towns. I would agree that they do, but he might be closer than not to being the answer as someone who can space the floor. He can, not the most efficient guy when you're going to put the ball in his hands, but he could sort of rumble towards the basket when he does put it on the floor. And like I already mentioned at the top of, of this discussion, like you can plug him on a lot of different um, offensive archetypes, so to speak, and he's going to hold up reasonably well. I don't know how much you want him. You know, Do you want someone who can trade off with Anthony Davis and defend all these bigs? That might be something where, yeah, we've seen him go up against some of the um, some centers this year, but I don't know if that's like the role that he can do. But if you can have someone who's going to be able to switch onto primary ball handlers, guards, wings, um, can sort of go up against bigger players a little bit, in addition to defending his own position, I think I don't know that there's a four. I mean, if you go LeBron at the four, that type of stuff. There's just he's not going to be overmatched in many of his assignments, and that's going to be valuable to this team. And the fact that he's doing it so soon, it's important because this is a team that does want to be good relatively quickly after trading away, even if they keep their pick this year, top three protection. The timeline here is still on the more accelerated side, with three years left on Towns' deal, they'll have two on D'Angelo Russell's after that, and the fact that they gave away that type of equity to get D'Lo, you're either giving the Warriors a pick this year or you're giving them an unprotected pick next year. And so this is not, they have the look and feel a little bit of a rebuilding team, but they need answers and there is urgency. And I think he's someone more so than a Kogi. I just, because I think McDaniels has shown you more bankability on offense. And that's just, it comes down to stretching the floor where if you want someone who's going to put pressure on the basket, yeah, you could go with um, Josh. That That's great there too. I would still just lean towards him being more important long-term than, than a Kogi. I, might, I think you could even argue Yo, is he more important? He's definitely more important long-term than Rubio. He might be someone who fits with the best iteration of the Timberwolves more so than D'Angelo Russell. Uh, definitely more than Jared Culver right now. Probably not Anthony Edwards. That's clearly the se- second most important Timberwolf. But I think Jay McDaniels is steadily working his way up that ladder. Yeah, uh, in all honesty, I think McDaniels is a better answer than Okogi. I think the reason I didn't consider McDaniels really at any point during the exercise was just that we had talked about him on a recent episode. Um, I think you had you had showered him with praise before a lot of other people were. 
And so in my head, he was already getting a little recognition when he probably isn't to the extent that he should nationally. So I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you on that one. Awesome. But do you know who's, who's up next? Oh, this is going to be do tough. This one? New Orleans Pelicans. That's why I was playing music well in done. the background because I knew that it was well New done. Pelicans. I'm impressed. Are they my team or your team? Oh, they're my team. I, I have no idea. I'm going to go with Josh Hart here. I do there there's like this tendency to think that he shoots a higher percentage from 3 than he actually does and so I don't know if he necessarily typifies the 3 and D aspect of of three-point shooting. He definitely doesn't this year when you're at under 33% from beyond the arc. And he's been first of all, he's only been above 35% once in his career. And so I get that there's shakiness there. There's also how valuable is his rebounding when you look at the contested versus uncontested rebounding percentages. I still think if you're going to have someone who is 6'5 and can grab, he has a 26.3 defensive rebounding weight. That's got to be valuable in in some form. He can keep the ball moving, and then he is a dog on the defensive end. This is someone, I think, who can give you minutes one through four, basically, certainly two through four. And it's been during his time in New Orleans where they've given him some of those power forward minutes. Those lineups have generally been interesting. And you can't lean on them if, if Zion's going to be your five, just that portends being a, a defensive nightmare, I would assume. Uh, that being said, I'm curious to see what he gets in restricted free agency. Also because they've already paid Ingram. They gave Steven Adams that extension. Lonzo Ball's in restricted free agency as well. And so if they pay him, is Hart someone who could fall through the cracks? Because there aren't, you know, everyone wants three and D wings. And if you think that he can shoot better on your team, aside from being someone who could just, you know, he'll give you um, some pressure on the basket. Uh, 30% of his shots are coming inside three feet. So he can be used in that vein. If you just have better spacing than new Orleans has had this year, he might be more valuable to you. And that's not to say that he hasn't been good for new Orleans and that he goes to another team is his shots just going to improve dramatically but if you think that this is better than what is right now a career 34.8 percent shooter and that's generous because his past three seasons have each been barely 34 percent or lower he's at 33.6 percent from three over the last three seasons what he does for you defensively can be absolutely monstrous i'm still going to go with lonzo ball here um i think the conversation around him has typically centered on what he doesn't do well or where he's going to go in restricted free agency we we've questioned his fit alongside zion williamson and the pelicans for two years running now and it it feels like the stark improvements that he's made this season have largely gone overlooked like they've been mentioned a few times but then they quickly get brushed aside for speculation about whether he's going to end up with the new york knicks as a restricted free agent or if he's the point guard of the future in new orleans it, it always seems like the conversations are about the future and not the present which is a shame because he's developed from an unquestionable shooting liability to one of the more efficient three-point snipers in the league so I'll tell you that there are nine players this season who are qualified for the three-point leaderboard and are taking at least eight threes a game and connecting at a 38% clip or better. You want to try to name the nine? Can you read that back to me? 38% shooting, eight threes per game. Oh, attempting eight threes per game? Yep. Steph's got to be one of them. Steph's one of them. Duncan Robinson? Duncan Robinson's one of them. Feel like I'm is Davis Bertans one of them? He is not. All right, spoil it for me. Lonzo Ball's one of them. Uh, so the nine are Steph oh. Curry, Donovan Mitchell, Zach Levine, Terry Rozier, C.J. McCollum, Duncan Robinson, Lonzo Ball, Buddy Heald, and Malik Beasley. 
I feel like three years ago, we would have been shocked, just downright stupefied that Lonzo Ball was in that group. Where's the recognition? I will say I thought you were implying he was in that group, which is why I wouldn't have named him, but I'm not sure how many of those names I would have gotten if we kept going. That is, But it's still a very elite group of shooters. My question to you, though, is what is he as a point guard? If a team wants to, he is this he is a great he he is a great point guard as long as you have a guy who can handle and create from a non-traditional spot. So on a team with Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson, I still love his fit now that he's a reliable shooter. I, he's a good pass. He's a good passer, especially in a secondary role where he gets to catch defenses scrambling after receiving a swing pass. He's a good defender in the backcourt. He's a good rebounder and he's become a reliable shooter. Like as long as you have a team like new Orleans, where you have players who can create for themselves and others from the non point guard spots, I think he fits just fine. The issue in new Orleans is just the lack of shooting and the complete lack of defense, but I don't think it's Lonzo balls fit. I'm going to be disappointed if he isn't there next year. If he isn't in New Orleans? Yeah, I really want him to stay because I think he can take this team to a higher level once the right supporting cast is around the three incumbents. I do, I do think that's part of the problem with him, and I, I agree with everything you said, is that you can't sign him to be your point guard and run the offense in that way. Like, yeah, there's a level of he can be that offensive intercessor for you and help you know, distribute usage a little bit better. But if you need to slow things down in the half court, run pick and roll, or you want someone who's going to try and get to the basket, get to the line, or even just want to score off the dribble, really get into the teeth of the defense, that's not him. And that's fine that it's not him. I don't it's think not. We, we, we don't need to view him in that context. You do need that type of player next to him. Otherwise, I don't know how valuable he then is to your team, if that makes any sense. I agree. And I think Kyra Lewis Jr. could get there. Eric Bledsoe was supposed to be that kind of guy, but just clearly hasn't been. Like I think it's pretty clear that those those days are behind him. The bat player might not be on their roster. They might have a tough time acquiring him. But I I don't think that you know, Lonzo Ball's not ever going to be an All Star. He's not going to be an All NBA figure. He's not a perfect point guard. He's not an all around player. But if we're talking about like high end role players, low level starters kind of thing, like I think he absolutely fits the bill in a, in a positive beneficial way. I'm with you. He's going to cost 20 plus million dollars this season. I would, I would estimate. And I guess the player we're talking about, they'll probably come closest with Kyra Lewis is probably the best option. I don't think it's Nikita. Yeah, I think so. It's probably Mm -hmm. Kyra. I don't either. Our next team, the Oklahoma city thunder, because I'm on fire. Just nailing everyone. Uh, I'm going to go with Darius Baisley here. Uh, it's it's tough because the Thunder aren't really like trying to win games right now. You know, I, I I don't know if they're like all out tanking, but they are. They're they're definitely like playing for the draft picks right now because they don't have enough of them. And it's given Baisley an opportunity to shine, which he has. He's still not a consistent floor spacer. But this is a guy who has shown some surprising craftiness off the dribble, who has been able to pull down a defensive rebound and go coast to coast. Uh, he can attack the basket and finish with authority. He can hit some pull-up shots. He, he's got a developing floater game. Like He, he is closer to an all-around scorer than not, and that could even change if he develops any semblance of a three-point shot, which 
We certain he certainly could based on the improvements we've seen at the charity stripe, the numbers he put up put up from the three point arc during his rookie season. Like I think there's even more to plumb here, and the Thunder should already be excited about the upside that he's shown in the second half of this sophomore season. I'm also going with Darius Baisley because I thought you were going to go with Moses Brown here. I, I I'm with everything you just said, and I do think that there's more. You know, since he's come back from a shoulder injury too, he's been. Not lights out. The three-point shot is still struggling. He's taking five of them per game over his last 10. This is since his return. 18.8 points per game, though. Two assists, and I do think he can he he will show, he'll continue to show better vision off the dribble and make better decisions because his assist-to-turnover ratio now is, let's just say it's not great, I think is really just the, the polite way to put it. But some of the shots he's taking inside the arc, the fact that he's almost at 50% of his twos this year, would be encouraging for me. He's improved his finishing around the basket. He really needs to get that in-between game down. And you mentioned his free-throw shooting. I think I'm sort of encouraged by this is the second consecutive season where he's been around 37% on his on his long twos. No, those are not a huge part of his game, but he, he's shown that he can hit them. And then, like you said, the three-point clip in lower volume as a rookie. And he's a, I would say he's you're going to use him at the three or the four. Long-term, I want to see more Darius Baisley at the five. If you want to have, you know, you're going to have Poku. There's Moses Brown as well. So I don't know how many minutes that you're going to reasonably want to squeeze him there. I assume Al Horford won't be there beyond this season. But that's something that I think they could go to and will be reasonably interesting, especially if Shea and Lou Dort are on the floor, because then that really opens up, especially with Dort, how you want to, if you want to mix and match with things defensively. And you considered Shea too, didn't you? I did, because we talked about him at the last pod, too, so I, I don't want to go in-depth there. But I don't know that people consider him this consensus max-type player or can he be the best Can he be the best player on a contender? Right now, the answer might be no, but just the efficiency he's juggled with incredibly high usage on a unfathomably difficult shot selection. 87%, I'll, I'll reiterate this, 87% of his made baskets have been unassisted, which is the highest mark in the league among 400 and 25-plus players who have appeared in at least 15 games. And that's still a dude who is shooting better than 40% from three, almost 55% from two. I think he's at like 54.3%. I don't have his numbers in front of me. I'm doing that from memory. So I think he is that player. Maybe not immediately right now, but he's on that trajectory based off what we've seen this season. And I wouldn't hesitate to give him a max extension. And just a quick shout-out to Moses Brown. He's basically Will Chamberlain. So maybe maybe better on defense than Will. Yeah, I don't I don't know that he's quite the score Wilt was. Like we might only see a ninety point game out of him at some point. Yeah, ninety. But like pretty similar players. Yeah. After the Oklahoma City Thunder, we have the Phoenix Suns, which is a team that I get to start off with. I'm going with Tory Craig here, and he probably would That was a seamless transition, by the way. You're welcome. Uh <laughs> I I cannot believe that they got him for free. Except for cash, that there was cash that they uh, Phoenix sent to Milwaukee, and he's not. No, I want to make this clear. He's not averaging like 15 points a game, and I'll be curious to see how his efficiency holds up in the playoffs. But they're using him, and they're using him in a way where it's not just because Abdul Nader has been injured. They've just actually leaned on him. He does a lot for them defensively, and I've been in- very impressed with what he's done on offense for them. 39.6 percent from three in Phoenix, 2.4 attempts per game, so not a ton, and. He's going to be left open in the playoffs if he's on the floor, so he has to hit those if you want to keep him on the floor. He's a he's a pretty good cutter, and then he will also he scored a little bit on drives too. He can do a little bit with the ball in his hands, and then he was, uh, you know, he's someone who can give you just put back from the wing put backs from the wing position 
I haven't seen a I don't see many wings crash the offensive glass like he does. And that's always been kind of a he's done it, but been an understated part of his game. And he doesn't do it in a way that compromises you getting back on defense. I don't think it's not him really chasing offensive rebounds. He just seems to be there or he knows when there's open lanes and how he can follow someone else's shot or or his own shot. And that's super valuable. And I think he made to get back to what he's able to do cutting. He was 13 of 13 on cuts to start his Phoenix tenure. This is someone who can be used in more than one way offensively. And then knowing on the flip side, what he gives you on defense, which is, um, I would say he's going to defend three positions, one through three, and then can give you some minutes against fours. I actually think they've even played him against some fives. I'm not saying he can defend all five positions, but that's a ton of versatility right there. He could end up being sneaky huge for them in the playoffs, especially if it's a game where they want to downsize because Aiton's maybe not playing well. And perhaps they don't trust Sharks just defensively because he's been better than I expected on D this season. But I think he can get, you know, teams can get by him if they're going to be aggressive in the half court. And if those teams are small enough, Torrey Craig slash Jay Crowder in the front court, maybe Cam Johnson's on the floor too. Another underrated guy, by the way. I think people view him as a shooter and he he's held up defensively as well in his first two seasons. But Torrey Craig is the pick for me. I think Cam Johnson has more than held up defensively. Like he's been an actual asset on the defensive end and capable of even manning the five and some small ball lineups. I think what helps is they've been very strategic about who they're putting him on, which I think does him for sure. But that's, I'm not trying to take away from him. Oh, and I'll wait for you to say who you picked so that I can explain why I didn't pick him very quickly because he is my brand. Do you want me to just let you do that before I give my justification, or do you want to go after it? I spoil the name because you didn't reveal it yet. Okay, well, you can talk about Mikael Bridges now. I think he's graduated from this. I named him the most underrated player in the NBA last season, and I just think he's good enough to have graduated from that. I don't think he's fully appreciated yet, but what Torrey Craig has done, and knowing Adam was going to give him some love anyway, and I, the only thing I'll add there is that we haven't done our award yet, but I'm pretty sure I'm putting him on all defense this year. I'm not sure about you. I would as well. Uh, and that's part of why I want to have him here. Um, I, I think he's definitely more appreciated now than he was last season. Craig might objectively be a better choice, but in keeping with what seems to be coming our tradition here, I'll go with the higher end underrated player. Uh, you know, you hear Chris Paul now getting MVP chance in opposing arenas and, you know, probably erroneously being mentioned in the MVP conversation. Devin Booker is still going to get so much attention in Phoenix because he's Devin Booker. But Mikhail Bridges has really been a glue holding this team together throughout the entire season. He's continuing to develop the diversity of his game on offense. His switchability and just overall defensive ferocity should get him a place on one of the all defensive teams this season, which I now know you agree with. And he's also become a very reliable three-point shooter, which is a must for for wings in today's game on these championship caliber teams, especially because you're going to play with some big men who aren't always spacing the floor. So I cherry-picked the ever-loving shit out of this stat, just to be clear. (laughs) But there are only two players in the NBA who are averaging at least 0.8 steals, 0.8 blocks, shooting 40% from three on at least four attempts per game. And those two are Mikael Bridges, shocker, right? And Danny Green, who is like basically viewed as the prototypical three and D wing over the last decade, so like he he kind of fits that role now. Yeah, and he, look, he's a fantastic cutter. He's shown that he can give you some secondary playmaking. Doesn't need to as much this season, but specifically last year when you're looking at it, you're not going to catch any arguments from me. He is extension eligible this season, and we saw that OG got four years and seventy two million. 
I would guess that he waited for a restricted free agency, he probably would have gotten closer to four years and 90 million or somewhere around there. I'm curious to see what happens with Mikael Bridges because my bet would be if he signs an extension, it's because Phoenix offered him substantially more than OG got from the Raptors. Yeah, I just I just pray that Phoenix does not let him go at any point in the foreseeable future because he is he's just so vital to the upside of this team. This next team was tough. The Portland Trailblazers. Who did you have for that? Tough alphabetically or tough to choose one? It was tough alphabetically because I really wanted to skip the P's and go right to the Kings, but here we are. <laughs> I'm proud of you. Um, I went with Ennis Cantor. I, I think it's funny. Once once you do this exercise for both conferences, and we we both put a ton of thought into these selections and just like trying to to pick the, the best player, not necessarily the most popular answer, I, I feel like you discover some tendencies about who your picks are going to be. And mine often seem to be players where the national discourse focuses more on what they can't do than what they can do. And I think if there is one emblematic person of that discrepancy, it's Ennis Cantor, because all you hear is like, this guy can't play defense. He doesn't have shooting range. He has held back teams in the past. And that that comes at the expense of, of the things he does really, really well, which is rebound the basketball, especially on the offensive end of the court where he creates so many second chance opportunities. And he's a really gifted scorer around the hoop. He does not often miss two point attempts. He can make them in a wide variety of ways. And he's fairly matchup proof on the offensive end of the floor. Like there's no one player you can put against Ennis Cantor and know that you're going to keep him from getting 20 and 10 if he's given the requisite minutes to do that. Um, if you give him a more physical defender, he can shimmy his way around. If if you put a more versatile defender on him, he can just overpower them. So this year, the Portland Trailblazers are 4.7 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor than they are without him. The, the Boston Celtics saw a similar trend last year. So this is just another one of those players where I wish we didn't focus on the flaws because it prevents us from appreciating the really extreme strengths. Can I go with April and Bernie Simons? And I, I'm in lockstep with you where the only thing that I think Ennis Kanter has done, done wrong this season is let Terry Stotts play him next to Carmelo Anthony in some of those second units earlier. I don't think that's, those have been staple minutes of late. But he's been been great for them. He can be a terror in the post, like you said. And he always seems to defend just a little bit better in Portland, and I don't think he's been great this year, but relative to the rest of his career, maybe I'm just hearkening back to his first stint in Portland a couple of years ago. Can I go with the month of April, Anthony Simons, which is his... his you may. I've heard you he can make like nine threes in a row. Right, and it's, I don't know if you remember, but his rookie season, he had that game towards the end of the regular season with against the Kings where he just went off, and that's why a lot of people decided that he was you know a, a long-term building block or untouchable and, and could be someone that was going to be really good for the Blazers. Has a true shooting percentage over 60 in the month of April for his career. I thought about also that was a joke, but it also kind of wasn't. I think Robert Covington belongs here a little bit too. Um, can play bigger than he actually is, and he's quietly shooting almost 38% um, from three this year. He's not the best one-on-one defender, but he's he's a really good defender, a good team defender, going to get deflections away from the ball. He can force the ball out of guys' hands. I don't know how comfortable you feel if he's your, you know, if he's your top man guy where you have to put him on the the highest usage. Um, person night in and night out. That's something that Portland has basically had to do. He's their most frequent 
I believe, I would have to check that, most frequent defender against number one options. I don't know how cut out for he is for that. He's not the reason that Portland's defense has been as bad as it is, which is also why Yusuf Nurkic might belong here. Their defensive minutes with him on the court have not been terrible. And so I think that you could easily make the case for, for him. Didn't start the year so hot, but even just through all like the wonkiness on offense and is he moving right on defense earlier, since he's come back, uh, he's he's been mostly stellar for them. And just looking at the on-off splits for, for him defensively, they really do work in, in his favor. So there are a bunch of, I guess, different names. I would say Derek Jones Jr. feels fairly underappreciated by Portland, at least, because we saw Rondé Hollis-Jefferson get so many minutes. And the fact that he's still just in the pecking order that far behind Carmelo Anthony, in certain situations, I would say, like you just shouldn't be afraid to leave Melo on the bench in crunch time. But this was a tough team for me. I think you picked the right player, though, that Ennis Kanter is still viewed as this memeable player on defense, and he's been something so much more, especially to this team on offense. Let's move on to the Sacramento Kings. I had Rashawn Holmes here. We've talked about him a lot on this podcast, so I don't know if he necessarily is still considered underrated, but there's been talk about are the Kings going to be able to keep him with his early bird rights where they would be allowed to before they have to create cap space, pay him about $10 million a year. Uh, I think he's going to command substantially more than that. He's been great this season. Gives you a little bit of everything on offense. I'd like to actually see them let him, you know, explore shooting threes. Uh, I think that's a part. I can't remember if it was Philly or Phoenix, but he hinted at that part of his game. Still, solid role man. We know he's still shooting 1 trillion percent on his floaters. Uh, he is 33 of 39 in transition this year. That's 84.66%. And the way he moves in the half court too, it's like he's probably not the strongest roller in the NBA, but he knows how to navigate traffic. And it's it's like he glides essentially. And he gives you, there's mobility on defense. I don't, he's not going to anchor a great defense, but opponents are shooting under 53% against him at the rim. That's an ultra solid number when he's contesting 7.1 attempts per game and he can be pulled out of the paint and hold his own there he's more of an all-around player than he receives credit for and I think if the Kings let him walk it'll be a mistake given that they didn't move him at the deadline because I you know if someone gives him 20 million dollars a year okay I get it would you pay figure out how to pay Rashawn Holmes 15 million a year I absolutely would the problem with them is they have to move somebody to make that happen I think Rashawn Holmes is the objectively correct answer here. He's not going to be my choice simply because there is not much I can add beyond you, who I consider the Internet's foremost expert on all things Rashawn Holmes. So I'm going to just go with a personal favorite here and pick Robert Woodard II, who has only appeared in 11 games during his rookie season uh, for a grand total of 29 minutes. That's after he was the 40th overall pick in the 2020 NBA draft. Uh, For me... He's the choice simply because he hasn't gotten the opportunity I think he deserves. Now, obviously, he hasn't shown anything in the NBA yet to justify that. But this is a guy coming out of Mississippi State. I genuinely thought he should be considered in the lottery. Um, I, I view him as just this really high-end 3-and-D wing, kind of in like the P.J. Tucker, Robert Covington kind of mold. But there's also some offensive upside. You know, I, I've seen some like flashes of Tobias Harris-like offense, just that three-level scoring, that that smooth steadiness with the ball in your hands, that quick rise and fire to his game. I think there's a lot more here, and I just want the Sacramento Kings to at least give him a chance to show it. And it just doesn't seem like we're going to because we've already entered the portion of the year where you typically get flyers on these guys. Maybe it's because the Kings are still trying to position themselves as best they can for the playoff race even though that 
might not be the smartest decision, might, but it would yeah. be very Kingsy. Um, so I, I just I, I want to see more from him. I think he'll get his shot next year, and I don't know if that's me predicting that they'll kind of steer into a rebuild just because I could see them kind of tearing it down a little bit. But yeah, I they don't have a ton of wing prospects there. There's Harrison Barnes, and then no. who? I, I don't know that I would consider Harrison Barnes a wing prospect. It's someone who could play the three, though. No, I know. I know. Yeah, <laughs> no, no there, there really yes. are not many options. Uh, that brings us to the San Antonio Spurs. Who did you have? Yeah, I know you don't typically like having rookies in this kind of conversation, but I'm actually going to go with my second straight rookie with Devin Vassell. Um, oh, wow, because just, I love him. Yeah, I mean, he's he's another just premier three and D candidate. You can already tell how advanced his defensive tools are. Even, you know, even when he's surrounded by what isn't the greatest defensive team, like he, he's immensely involved on that end. His ability to poke his hands into passing lanes to disrupt careless ball handlers. Like you see these advanced traits from him, which typically should not be present in a rookie who won't turn 21 until late August. And then you pair that with the three point shooting that we pretty much knew would translate, but it's always affirming to actually see it translate. So, you know, he's only taking 2.3 threes per game, but he's hitting 39.1% of them. Pair those two skills together, and you get a rookie who should be talked about a lot more, particularly in a not great rookie class. You, ne- I mean, he's not going to win rookie of the year. He's only averaging five points per game. But you just don't even hear his name come up in conversations about the best rookies in this class, and it should. Yeah, uh, he's going to be very good for them. There's, they're almost, they have two, I'm surprised he hasn't played more this year. There's almost too many, maybe with the Derek White injury now, that will change. There's almost too many perimeter options on San Antonio now. Maybe they get rid of one of them and DeRozan this season, and then Gay's also a free agent. But between Lonnie Walker, who, I can't figure that dude out. Uh, do you have a feel for what Lonnie no. Walker is going to be? I've, I've got nothing. I miss his hair. It depends on the night. I, miss I do his miss hair. his hair tremendously. Like, but yeah, between Keldon Johnson, probably the most reckless driver in the league still, and I absolutely love it. And then even having DeJounte Murray in there who can play is not just a point guard looking at his size. I'm, I'm interested to see more from Devin Vassell, and I hope we get it next year. I think he, do you think he has more ball skills to offer? He's going to be really good defensively. He's also going to keep the ball moving, and he's going to shoot well from threes. Do you think he has any more to plumb on offense with the ball in his hands? I don't. I don't. I think that he's going to top out as a guy who's averaging like 10 to 12 points per game, but is still like one of the most valuable players in the NBA in that scoring tier. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be able to get to a Mikhail Bridges level of handling the ball or even a Sadiq Bay at this point. I'd be curious to see what happens if they tried to, to plumb that a little bit a little bit more. I have Jakob Bertel, who quietly, by the way, his free throw shooting, this has not been quiet, it's been terrible this year. He's at 85.7% from the foul line over his last 10 games. So... Shout out to to Jakob Pertl, who before that uh, was a disaster from the foul line. What was he before his last 10 games? 40.4%. So he has more than doubled his accuracy from the foul line over his last 10 games. Solid rim protector, can move fairly well. Really good screener. If you watch when the Spurs play, like there might be possessions where he sets like three, four different screens on the same play. He is third. This is something I didn't know leading into this podcast until I started looking at stuff for this podcast. Excuse me. He is third in assist, uh, screen assist points per game. That's really impressive. Uh, I'm not trying to. Who's first and second? What's that? Who's first and second in in that category? 
Um, I should have left that page up. Oh, I have it up still. Uh, Sabonis is first, uh, second, and Rudy Gobert is first. Uh, he is fourth when you look at just assists, but he sets screens really far out. Aiton's in front of him if you look at just screen screen assists by a hair. He's also he's going to crash the offensive glass for you. I also think that he's a better role man than we've seen this this season. Some of the lineups I think he's played in have not been conducive to him you know, scoring a ton of points out of the pick and roll. Teams are probably also fouling him more because they know that he sucks at the the free throw line too. But with the type of spacing the Spurs can surround him with or with the lineup structure they have can surround him with, I think he's someone who, in addition to being able to hit the offensive glass for you, he's still going to be a valuable role man. But just his screening is going to open up a lot of opportunities for his teammates. And they, look, I don't want to celebrate them for, I would argue, you know, they ended up underpaying him in restricted free agency, but that ends up being like a, a really good value contract now where it was effectively, was it three years and $27 million, I think is what they gave him. That's I think that's fantastic value for him. For them, for them. I would also be remiss not to just give a quick shout to DeMar DeRozan. I I didn't ultimately choose him for the Spurs, but like this is a guy, despite receiving all-star consideration, I I think that he is also, he's been too much of a lightning rod in debates between analytics and the eye test to kind of escape that reputation. But he's been free to play his brand of basketball, and it has been marvelous. Like this dude is just such a gifted scorer. Uh, I I've really enjoyed watching him, even if he's not contributing to a winning team this year. He's just he's a joy to watch when he's freed to be himself and not pigeonholed into a role that isn't perfectly ideal for him. Yeah, that's a good that's a great shout out for him. I not to bring this free agency. I think he can help a team if he leaves the Spurs. You don't want to tailor your offense around him, but he's everyone makes a big deal of the shot profile. He's a fantastic playmaker and still he's a bucket. He's just a bucket. He's a better playmaker now than he's ever been, too. That yeah, gives me more confidence now that, like, you know, we've we've all heard about the consistently negative net rating swings and whatnot for him. But, like, he can make a team better in the right role, especially now that he's developed those skills because he's been able to. Right, and the other thing is, like, a lot of those splits, I mean, he had some of those problems in Toronto, but a lot of the starting lineups he's been in have not fared so well while he's been in, in San Antonio. Anyway... We are on to, can I go a perfect 15 for 15? The Toronto Raptors. I think so. Oh, you were so close. Utah Jazz. It's the Atlanta Hawks. <laughs> uh, Utah, I had, yeah, it's me that's starting, correct? Yeah, I had Utah here. Or I had Joe Ingles here, excuse me. I had Utah here. I want everyone to know that that wasn't so much of a mistake. Joe Ingles, I think, has to be a pick. And we were talking about this before we jumped on the pod. The reason why, or one of the primary reasons why, is he's a six-man-of-the-year candidate, but he's not being identified as the winner on his own team. That's been mostly, or that's been almost entirely, I think he's starting to get a little bit more, uh, there's been more rumblings for him, but I don't, you know, it's still Jordan Clarkson in so many people's eyes, and he's sort of faded as the season has, has has gone on, and Joe Ingles has just not. He is having, and I don't say this with hyperbole, one of the most efficient seasons in NBA history. He has, this year specifically, he leads the league in true shooting percentage among players who qualified for the field goal percentage leaderboard. 70.2 true shooting. And this is someone who is taking 300, 339 threes so far as we record this. So he's not living at the basket. 47.8% from three, 59.2% from two. He's just ahead of Rudy Gobert, who ranks two in this. Normally you see bigs 
you know, maybe because you're adding free throw shooting in there, it gets a little iffy. But like, this is something that you would expect to see more bigs. Just look at the the other top, you know, ten. Rashawn Holmes is fifth. Jared Allen is third. Rudy Gobert is second. Uh, Montrezl Harrell is ninth. Zion is tenth. Those are the names that you would expect to see. Joe Ingles is number friggin' one. Here's the other thing that's crazy. There are only there's one player in NBA history who has ever averaged more than 15 points and five assists per 36 minutes while matching or exceeding Joe Ingles' effective field goal percentage, which for anyone who doesn't know, that's going to be a measure of both his two-point and three-point shooting. Who is it? I have no clue whatsoever. It's probably going to be something like Michael Jordan. Wilt Chamberlain. All right. That is... And look, we're looking at... Just the Moses Brown is is obviously better than Joe Ingles to the transitive property now. Right. And look, Moses Brown is going to eventually make this list. I think we can all agree. And he'll probably do it while averaging almost as many points as Wilt did in 66, 67. So he's soon to be here. But I look, and look, these are, I didn't so much cherry pick them 15 and five per 36. Really? Isn't that ridiculous of a benchmark? The efficiency. It's different than like 0.8 steals and 0.8 blocks. Yeah, I would say so. Maybe, maybe a little bit. Yeah, that, that a wasn't bit. so much cherry picked as like you actually designed it. <laughs> you couldn't even select it. You had to invent that. That is still just—he's having one of the most efficient seasons in NBA history for a perimeter player. That's and that's—you could say that. That shouldn't be controversial. He would be my pick for Sixth Man of the Year right now. Mine too. Do you think? Do you think he gets it? No, definitely not. Jordan Clarkson alone is going to siphon off too many votes. That's cannibalizing it from each other. We gotta get beyond the people laughed at me when we I do. picked. I thought Thaddeus Young. This was earlier in the season. I want to make it clear. It was just when Jordan Clarkson has, had kind of like he was he climaxed and now was his falling action. And so I picked Thaddeus Young because of how good he had been. He hadn't started too many games at that point, and people were just laughing. I think I'm not trying to be analytics nerd here. We need to get away from the guy who scores the most points off the bench is your sixth man of the year. If you want that to be an award, let's create a separate award for it. I know this is already a longer podcast and we're way beyond what we originally planned, but I have to like go off on this little tangent before I give my pick for Utah. Do you think it's valid to have two players from the same team on your sixth man of the year ballot? Or like by definition, does one of those have to be a seventh man and shouldn't be eligible? I, I thought about that last year during the Lou Will Montrez Harrell thing. And even the year before, I think it was Lou Will Montrez Harrell again. Yeah. I don't. I honestly don't know. I think rotations are fluid enough to where, maybe not in this case, like coaches could change it up a little bit. Here it's a little bit iffy because they're not. I mean, they play such different roles. It was there was more of a line between Trez and Lou Williams because like they for sure they needed each other. Whereas Joe Ingles and Clarkson can operate more so independently of one another. Do you go like who do you default towards? Is it the person? Do you have to go back and look who came off the bench first? Like, is that who we're considering the sixth man? Do you have to look at, is it who's averaging more minutes, which would be Joe Ingles by a minute and a half here? I don't know how you would delineate, aside from staying to the truest sense of sixth man of the year and saying, it's the first guy who comes off the bench. Maybe sometimes that happens in tandem, which makes it more difficult. I, I, I honestly don't know. Where do you stand on that? I think I just view it as, like, the official name of the the award given to the best bench player. Personally, I don't think I would have any qualms about turning in a ballot with two guys from the same team if I thought they were two of the three best bench players in the NBA. I'm with you. I have no. I personally have no qualms about it. I could see, given how the award is titled, as I was talking myself through it, I, that's what, if you wanted to differentiate it, 
what is the differentiator? Do you just have to stay true to the spirit of the title? It's the first guy who comes off the bench. I guess, but like at the same time, like it's also called the MVP and not the MVP OTBT. <laughs> well, here's the other thing too is I assume you know what that stands for. I actually do not. Most valuable player on the best team. I didn't hear you. That's what it goes to. I heard OT and I OTB. Yeah, got that. And look, by the way, if it was uh, for the six, getting back to the six man of the year specifically, <laughs> how would you do it? Or how do you do it now? How do you reconcile that Joe Ingles is he's played more than half of his games coming off the bench, but he started 20 of his 57 games. Does that change the calculus here at all? I think the official designation is like ha- more than half of your games have to be from off the bench, or maybe it's more than half of the team's games or something. Um, but personally, I think that once you start starting that often, that it kind of defeats the purpose. I would rather it go to it's it's hard because you can't like set this true, clear cut, universal delineation. Like you can't be like 15 games and you're not eligible anymore because circumstances change. So I, I don't know. It, it it almost feels like it has to be a nebulous definition. He's look. He's starting now though because of the Donovan Mitchell injury. And I'm wondering right. if that, because he was sub 20, I think he started the last seven games or whatever it is. I have to go back and check. I think if that gets to like 23, 25, he's probably out. That's just, that's like a third probably of the season. So. At that point. Yeah. 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 But after derailing us, I'm going to, I'm going to reveal that, that my pick for the Utah jazz, though I gave strong consideration to Joe Ingles is Rudy Gobert. You know, I've, I've picked a couple stars and I think this is another one for the same reason, because there's so much focus on what he doesn't do well that there's hesitance to give him the true credit he deserves. And beyond that, he's also one of those players who doesn't score a lot, which is typically the greatest currency in NBA conversations. Uh, So you pair those two things together and it's just a perfect recipe for an underrated star. He is just so incredibly impactful his defense certainly isn't underrated. We know that he's in the defensive player of the year conversation each and every season, but his offense is. Uh, even if he's only averaging 14.4 points, even if he's only averaging 1.3 assists, the things that he does on the offensive on the offensive end generate so much gravity that it makes everything easier for his teammates. You know, we we typically talk about gravity as three-point shooters who are able to warp the defense in their direction, but you have to pay attention to Gobert around the basket. You know, he's one of the rare big men who you can't just cheat off of too much or, you know, overplay away from him because you know that NBA teams aren't trying to generate post shots. He'll create offensive rebounds. He typically plays up at the top of the key, not as a shooter, but because he's such an effective role man and he's such a great screen setter. You know, you you said earlier he is number one in screen assists. And even if that's become a running joke on Twitter, because some Utah Jazz fans and analysts like to talk about that particular stat a little bit too much. It is still a valuable thing to be good at. Setting screens is a huge part of NBA offenses in today's NBA. You know, if you're that good at it, which he is, it matters. There there are so many little things that he does. And even beyond that, like the Jazz, who have been the best team in the NBA for a lot of this season, are 18.5 points per 100 possessions better when he's on the floor than when he's not. And as we just talked about, they have two sixth man of the year candidates. It's not like this is some shitty bench that, you know, he comes on the floor and hemorrhages the leads that he's helped build. Like he is making the team that much better. 
So if you want to talk about how the screen assists get talked about too much, how he doesn't have any shooting range, how he relies on others to set him up, how he once got played off the court in a playoff game or in a playoff series, like, sure, just appreciate the guy too. And also the the other thing that I think you can look at is more important than a screening, I think, is the role of gravity he has, which I think there are different definitions of it. I'm just viewing it as if you're going to set a screen, like how how dangerous are you that it's going to convince a team to help off what might be a really good shooter because they're so afraid of what you could potentially do at the rim. And he's also gotten better at passing in those situations. Their effective field goal percentage jumps by 3.5 percentage points with him on the court. That is given how accurate the Jazz have been this season, and that's a swing that rates in the 72nd percentile, I believe, of uh, fellow centers. That's, you know, and it is also, by the way, the biggest mark. It's a 92nd percentile. It's the biggest swing on the Jazz, and I don't think that's an accident. And so I would just argue that the gravity he has is a role man. If you want to troll Jazz fans for citing screen assists, they're important. I totally get it. I think his role gravity might be the most, it's clearly the most important element to me of his, his offensive game. It's not even the finishing it's just the idea of what he can do as the role man. It forces defenses to overreact. Yeah, I'm 100% in agreement. And I will just say once again that you know, having watched a lot of basketball, like I, I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone who's better at baiting offensive players into thinking they've beaten him off the dribble and then recovering to either contest or block the shot. He is just so unbelievably adept at, at hedging and showing even more because he knows that he can recover. It's just such an immensely valuable skill. He is he the only player in the league where if you have him on your team, you're probably guaranteed a top ten defense. I, I might put Giannis in that category just because he can do so many things that it covers up for so many weaknesses. Would you put Embiid in there? I think that you still need good perimeter defenders with Embiid. You're probably right. My bigger concern would be, does he play enough games or is your, your off minutes with him? And that's the other thing. Dramatic that you're not able to. Yeah. This was a long one. Thanks for whoever, not really the longest one by our standards, still under 80 minutes. So congratulations to us. Thank you all for listening. As always though, please, please, pretty, please remember to rate review and subscribe to hardwood Knox wherever you get your podcast, download every episode. I reiterate, subscribe, whether you use iTunes, Head over there anyway, even if you don't. Search Hardwood Knox. Throw us that five-star rating, write a review. Those help us out a ton. Follow us on Twitter, at Hardwood Knox. Follow us on YouTube, youtube.com. Search Hardwood Knox. We will come up, subscribe. Check out some of our shorter clips there. All our podcasts get posted there, too. Juice those algorithms with your likes. And follow the Sports Math Network online, at the underscore sports underscore math. And follow Adam on Twitter. Get that. Get this mf to 7,000 followers already at Frommel09. That's F-R-O-M-A-L-09. Until next time, we collectively, the two of us, leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, someone who's going to be better than Will Chamberlain, Moses Brown. <laughs>